It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said of the book of Romans, it is the Mount Everest of Scripture. Today we begin a journey that will take us to sacred heights. Over the next several weeks, we will examine this 16-chapter book. Today I want us to begin by focusing our attention on four verses, four of the 434 verses found in the letter to the Romans. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Romans chapter one. I wanna read in your hearing verses 14 to 17. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter one, allow me to begin at verse 14. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word, you may be seated. In these four verses, there are three statements that seem to jump off the black and white page. Paul says, I am obligated. Secondly, I am eager. And third, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It was John R.W. Stott who said, these three statements are as countercultural today as the first day Paul wrote them. First, he says, I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks. That word obligated means indebted. There are two ways that I can be indebted to you. The first is, if I borrow $4,000 from you, I'm indebted to you until I pay it back. The second way I could be indebted to you is that if Randy gave me $4,000 to give to you, then I'm indebted to you until I deliver upon that which has been entrusted into my care. It's the second form of indebtedness that Paul has in mind. He has been entrusted with the gospel. Therefore, he is indebted to those who are in Rome so he can share that gospel, that which has been entrusted into his care. He says, I am indebted or I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks. For Paul to say that he's indebted to Greeks does not mean that he's indebted only to people that live in and around Greece. No, in the first century, a Greek was one who was highly educated in the classical Greek rhetoric. So that when he says, I'm indebted to Greeks, he's saying, I'm indebted to the educated, to those who are learned, to those who are informed. I'm indebted to the upper echelon of society. But he also says, I'm equally indebted to non-Greeks. Non-Greeks, the word is literally barbarian. It means common folk. It means the working class. It could also include servants and slaves. Paul says, I am equally indebted to non-Greeks as well as to Greeks. What he's doing is he is identifying both extremes of society. He is acknowledging both ends of the social ladder, from the upper class to the lower class. Paul says, I am indebted to give unto you what's been entrusted to me. Now, why would Paul say this? 
Because in verse one, he identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He is a slave of Jesus. He is owned by the Lord Jesus himself. He has new ownership, therefore he has new marching orders. So everything he does is to glorify Christ. So he is indebted to all people, Greeks and non-Greeks. He goes on to describe them as the wise and the foolish. For the educated regarded themselves as being wise. And they also looked down on the non-Greeks, those uneducated barbarians, as those who were foolish. Now, Paul is not calling people wise or foolish, but he's saying, in every social setting, in every social class, I'm indebted to share the gospel. Now, if we think that there's a divide in America between the haves and the have-nots, it pales in comparison to first century Roman Empire. Because in the Roman Empire, there was the upper class that always maintained their status as the upper echelon of society. And then they made sure that other people were part of the underbelly of society down in the lower class. Those barbarians, those Scythians, those slaves, those bond servants. And Paul is being countercultural. It's not so shocking for him to say, I am indebted or obligated to the upper class. But he says, I'm equally obligated to the lower class because of what's been entrusted into my care, the sweet gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody in the city of Rome, nobody in the Roman Empire would have said they were obligated towards anyone who was non-Greek, obligated towards anyone who was unlearned and uninformed. And yet Paul says, I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks. It doesn't matter to me how much money's in your bank account, Paul's saying. It doesn't matter to me what kind of fancy chariot you drive. It doesn't matter to me if you don't drive anything and you just walk with the sandals on your feet. It doesn't matter how much you have or how much you don't have. I have been entrusted with the gospel and because of that, I'm indebted to give it to you. Oh, my friend, I wonder, is this how you view people? Do you view people as people that you're indebted to, to share the gospel? Do you see people that have a lot and people who don't have a lot, but yet you see them as those who are worthy recipients of hearing the good news of Jesus? When you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that uh, Paul had never been to Rome, that he writes this in 57 AD, and he writes this letter to a church that he did not have a hand in founding. This is the only New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul that is not to a church that he did not help establish. He wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote to the Galatians, he wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to all these places because these were churches that he was instrumental in laying the foundation, but not the case in Rome. Paul had not been there. In fact, in the preceding verses from the ones that I read for you, the apostle says that I was providentially hindered from coming to you. I wanted to come, but God kept me from coming. If you were to fast forward to chapter 15, it is the apostle who then gives his traveling uh, itinerary and he says, I am taking an offering that's been collected from Gentile believers. I'm gonna take them to the suffering Christians that are living in Jerusalem. And once I give them to those Jewish believers in Jerusalem, then I will come and visit you on my way to Spain. And I will come to you and we will mutually encourage one another. The apostle had great respect for this church in Rome. He said, I will encourage you and you will also encourage me as I continue my journey on westward to share the gospel in Spain. So Paul is saying, I am obligated 
to people that I know and people that I don't know. I mean, I'm obligated to share the gospel. I'm indebted to people to, to give to them the gospel that's been entrusted to me. People that I know and even people that I don't know. People that I've met and people that I've never met. Now this begs the question, well, if Paul was not instrumental in founding the church at Rome, who was? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says the Apostle Peter, and perhaps, but I doubt it, More accurately, probably what happened is in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we read that some visitors from Rome came to Jerusalem, and they inevitably heard the gospel that the apostle Peter preached. Probably some of them accepted and trusted Jesus as Savior, and they were counted among the believers who were saved that day that counted more than 3,000. And they probably took that sweet gospel back to Rome, and they told their family and friends, and the church was born But regardless, by the time you get to the late 50s of the first century, there was a robust church in Rome. It was a church that was alive and thriving. It was a church that was blowing and going. It was a church that had tremendous ministry. And the apostle says, I am obligated. I'm obligated to share the gospel with you. I'm indebted to you because this gospel has been entrusted into my care. Secondly, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to all of you in Rome. Now, friend, let me ask you to fill in the blank. I am eager to what? What are you eager to do? You may say, I am eager to get back to school. I am eager for COVID-19 to be over. I am eager to get life back to normal. I am eager to watch college football. I am eager to go to my favorite restaurant. I am eager to go shop at the mall. I am eager to go on vacation. I am eager to make my next post. I am eager to get on Instagram. I am eager to eat lunch. I am just eager to do whatever. How would you fill in the blank? I am eager to do what? And when it comes to your eagerness for evangelism, how far down the list does evangelism fall? Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Evangelism, he says, has been stoked in my bones. I've got a holy case that can't help us. I just can't help. I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, I've got a couple of questions about this gospel that Paul proclaims. First of all, what is the gospel? In verses two to six of chapter one, he gives a rather succinct understanding of the gospel. And let me summarize it in this way. He says that the gospel is found and bound exclusively in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the core center of the gospel. It is a promise that was given to the prophets a long time ago, for they foretold of the coming of the Messiah. And in those opening verses of chapter one, it's the apostle who describes that Messiah. Regarding his human lineage, he was a descendant of David. Regarding his spirituality, he was a son of God. The evidence that Jesus is the God-man, fully human and fully divine, is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything about the gospel rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. 
Everything about our faith hinges upon the reality that Jesus bore our sin on Calvary's tree. His dead body was placed into a grave. And on the third day, he was literally, physically, bodily raised from the dead. Friend, let me tell you that if the gospel wasn't true, if the resurrection did not happen, then the gospel never would have made it out of the first century. Because there have been a lot of people, there would have been a lot of people to say, this is fake news. Because it's not true. We can take you to the tomb. We can dig up the bones. We know that his body is right there. But nobody could declare that. Nobody could find the bones of Jesus because there were those who were adamant that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In an earlier letter to the Corinthian church, the apostle says that Jesus appeared in bodily resurrected form to more than 500 believers at the same time. And many of these brothers are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, just go interview them. Just go check it out for yourself. Do your own investigation and you will see this is not a hoax. All of us cannot be duped into believing this. We all affirm that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Friend, I'm here to tell you that if that was fake news, the gospel never would have made it outside the first century. And here we are all these centuries later because the gospel is not fake news. The gospel is good news that though we were dead in our sins Jesus died in our place his dead body was placed in our grave and on the third day Jesus was raised from the dead everything about our faith rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection and here we are in the 21st century and we are equally adamant that Jesus is Lord why because his dead body was physically raised from the dead everything in the gospel hinges on the resurrection. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul will spend 16 chapters giving a clear, careful defense of this gospel. All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that we confess with our lips, Jesus Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All throughout these 16 chapters, there is a clear, concise, carefully constructed defense and description of this gospel. So Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I got another question about this gospel. And the question is, why is it important to preach the gospel to an established church? Paul wrote this letter, as I've already said, in 57 AD. And he's writing to a church that's been established for the better part of two decades or longer. So why is it important to share the gospel to a church that is firmly established. Why share the gospel with Christians? Why share the gospel with a congregation that has been around for a long time? And my simple answer is this. The gospel not only saves the soul, but it also unites the body of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves your soul, but it unites 
the body of Christ. At this time in human history, in the Roman church, there was division. This strife was internal and it was external. In 49 AD, Claudius was the emperor, and Claudius issued a decree evicting all the Jews from the capital city of Rome. Many of those early believers in the Jewish and in the uh, Christian church were Jews by nature. And so they were evicted, and they had to flee the capital city. Five years later, in 54 AD, Claudius died, and so did his edict. So many of those Jewish Christians migrated back to the capital city. They got back into the marketplace. They got back into their jobs. They went back to church. It had been five years, and when they came back, they realized, hey, this is not the same church that we left five years ago. Because these Jewish Christians that inevitably had leadership responsibility, when they left, there was a leadership vacuum. And who picked up the mantle? But Gentile believers. And those Gentile Christians, they didn't make the same decisions that their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters had made. And so five years had passed. And when those Jewish Christians came back, there was a little bit of division. And they thought to themselves, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? There was great um, misunderstanding about the dietary laws and not enough emphasis from their perspective on the certain holy days, holidays. And so there was some division. This division was not necessarily theological, but it was about secondary issues. Friends, in most churches, most churches have internal strife not because of theological issues. They have internal strife because of secondary, peripheral, tertiary issues, like the color of the carpet right? I mean, some churches get up in arms because of a certain paint color or a carpet color or this or that, which really, in the big scheme of things, it's really minute, but yet it causes division. So Paul writes this letter in 57 AD to communicate the gospel. Why? Why does the established church need to hear about the gospel repeatedly? Because not only does it save your soul, it also unifies the body of Christ. Not only was there internal struggle and strife, but there was external struggle and strife. By the end of the fifth decade of the first century, there were some who said of the Apostle Paul, he is peddling a gospel that is anti-law. He is proclaiming a gospel that's all about grace. He is saying you can live however you want to live and it really doesn't matter because God's grace will abound and God will forgive you. And certainly we know that God's grace does abound and God does forgive us. But Paul writes this treatise. He writes this letter to the Roman church to establish once and for all, this is the gospel. And when you read the letter of the Romans, you will discover it is not anti-law. It is not anti-Moses. It is not anti-covenant. In fact, this, this, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it leads us to obedience. There is an ethical requirement of the gospel. It is not that we can just live however we want to live. It doesn't matter what we do. Yes, it does matter what we do because there's an ethical component to the gospel. This gospel that saves us always drives us unto obedience. Always. And so Paul writes this gospel, writes this letter to describe and defend the gospel that he proclaims. It is a gospel that is by grace, but that grace does not mean that you ought to sin more so that more grace can abound. No, this gospel leads you unto obedience and it drives you to the nations. It drives you to preach this gospel. So Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you 
to all of you who are in Rome. And then third, the apostle says, I am unashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Friend, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Before you bow up and resist and say, no, I've never been ashamed of the gospel, let me just remind you, there was a time when the apostle Paul was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed of the gospel when he stood at the execution of Stephen. And by him standing there, he was giving affirmation that this was the right thing to do because Stephen was one of those followers of the way. The apostle Paul was ashamed of the gospel when he was breathing out murderous threats against the church and on the road to Damascus, it was the Lord Jesus himself that knocked Paul off his high horse, blinded his eyes, told him to go into Damascus to Judas of Straight Street. And there a man by the name of Ananias would come and touch his eyes, heal the, the sores and share the gospel with him. Yeah, there was a time when Paul was ashamed of the gospel, but the gospel transformed him. The gospel changed him so that he could get to the point where he can now write, I am unashamed of the gospel. Has there ever been a time when you were ashamed of the gospel? Has there ever been a moment, even post-conversion, that you were ashamed of the gospel? Before you quickly say no, let me just ask you, has there ever been a moment when you committed the sin of silence, when you should have given a testimony? Has there ever been a moment when you committed the sin of defiance instead of the sin of submission, or instead of the obedience of submission? Has there ever been a moment when you committed the sin of disobedience instead of simply being obedient to God's call upon your life? If I were to ask you, why were you silent? Why did you not share your testimony? Why did you not give a defense of the gospel? Why were you so defiant and disobedient instead of being submissive and obedient unto Christ? Why is that? You could give me a laundry list of reasons why. Can I just sum up all those reasons and excuses? Ashamed of the gospel. Just ashamed. At some level, you were ashamed of the gospel, so you didn't speak. Ashamed of the gospel, so you thought your way was better than his way. Ashamed of the gospel, and you decided to do your own thing instead of doing his thing. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. The Greek word for power is dunamis, it's dynamite. Um, and you may not be all that impressed with a stick of dynamite, I get it. What Paul is saying is that, the, that the, this, this gospel that I proclaim, it, it is a nuclear detonation upon my soul. I mean, it has so changed me. It has wrecked me. It has messed me up. It has completely transformed me. I am evidence and exhibit A that the gospel makes a transforming difference upon the life of a person because the, I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is a nuclear detonation in my soul, in my spirit. It is the power of the gospel that, that gives me life more abundant and free. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It is God's powerful activity upon raising spiritually dead people to life again. And God's gospel cannot just transform Paul, it can also transform you. He says it's given first to the Jew and then the Gentile. Before you 
think to yourself, now wait a minute, Paul, why are you saying that? I mean, I just described to you how there was some internal division in the church between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And when Paul says this gospel is given first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, you can well imagine probably some Jewish Christians that began to swell up and say, I told you I was first. I told you I was better than you. No, Paul's not given a hierarchy in the church. He's just simply saying this salvation, this gospel, it originates with God. And God sent his Messiah through the Jewish nation. For us to say that Israel is God's chosen people, it does not mean that they get an automatic bid into heaven. It doesn't mean that there's an alternative route to God. It simply means that of all the nations that God could have selected to send his Messiah, he picked up the tool of Israel. He picked up the Jewish nation and you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when he says to Father Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed, that the gospel will be delivered to and through the Jewish people, but it will not be confined just to Israel. It'll be given to all the nations, all the Gentiles. As I look across the room, I venture to say I see a whole lot of Gentiles. I see a whole lot of people that are not Jewish. I cannot look beyond that camera, but I could be speaking to some Jewish individuals, but I'm probably speaking to a whole lot of Gentile individuals. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ goes to and through the Jews into the nations of the world because God's gospel is not confined to a specific nation. It is given globally to all people. So Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. When you come to verse 17, it is the thesis statement of the entire book of Romans. That when you and I come to Romans chapter one, verse 17, it is a gospel that reveals a righteousness of God. That phrase, righteousness of God or righteousness from God is huge in the book of Romans. It is so huge that I can describe it in this way, that that phrase, righteousness from God, is mentioned seven times in these 16 chapters. Yes, seven is the number of completion. Yes, it's the biblical number of totality. But even greater still, in all the other New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul, that phrase, righteous from God, is mentioned no more than three times. In the rest of the New Testament, everything written not by Paul, the phrase, righteousness from God, is mentioned an additional three times. So you can accurately say that in the book of Romans, it speaks of the righteousness from God more than all the other occurrences of that phrase in the entire New Testament when you put it all together. Here in the book of Romans, Paul speaks repetitively about the righteousness from God. He speaks of it seven times, which is more than all the other times in the New Testament put together. So what is it? What is this righteousness from God? Well, it describes God's powerful activity. Every time God acts, he acts righteously. It is his power on display from Genesis to Revelation. 
It also is a word that communicates his equality because God does not show favoritism. It's a word that describes God's justice. Every decree he makes is just. Every decree he makes is right. This righteousness from God not only describes who God is and what he does, but it also describes what he gives. He gives to believers a righteousness. What that means is a right standing before God. The word righteousness is a judicial term. It means innocence. That God declares upon people innocence both now and forevermore. And also embedded in that word righteousness is an understanding of moral purity. That everything God does is morally pure. It is accurate. It is right. The biblical understanding of God is that he is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. He is a God of equality. He is a God of power. He is a God of innocence. He is a God of moral purity. When you understand the God of the Bible, you must understand him as a God of righteousness. Whenever anybody tries to describe God as wicked or shady or one who shows favoritism, that is not the God of the Bible. Whenever you come to the God of the Bible, whenever you understand this God as described in this sacred book, God is always fundamentally and foundationally understood as righteous. His word is righteous. His activity is righteous. His decrees are righteous. He is just. He is innocent. He is pure. This describes not only who he is and what he does. It also describes what he gives. In the gospel, Paul says, there is a righteousness from God that is revealed from faith from the first to the last. Now your phrase in your Bible may say something like from faith to faith. And accurately stated, uh, the phrase from faith to faith is actually more biblical to the ancient text. So what does Paul mean? This righteousness from God, from faith to faith. Well, some have speculated and said what Paul means is it's by faith alone. That by faith and faith alone do we have this righteousness declared upon our lives. And there's great truth in that statement. But I'm also going to say this. That I think that at the heart of what Paul means is he is communicating to the church at Rome, I am not making anything up. This gospel does not originate with me. This gospel is not uh, something that, that I created. Uh, this is God's gospel that he has been declaring from ages past. When he says from faith to faith, I think he kind of means it in the way that we say from sea to shining sea. When we say that, what do we mean? From one coast to the next. From sea to shining sea. That's what Paul is meaning. From faith to faith. The faith of the generations in the past is the same faith of the present generation. And it will be the same faith of future generations. That the only way that the righteousness of God is received in your life is by faith. That's what he's driving at. The only way you receive this God-sized righteousness, this innocence, this declared uh, justice in your life is by faith. You receive it the same way 
Adam and Eve received it. You receive it the same way Abraham received it. You receive it the same way David received it. You receive it the same way that Daniel received it. You receive it the same way Rachel received it. You receive it the same way Esther received it. You receive it by faith. That's the way they receive it. That's the way you receive the salvation. That's the way anybody will ever receive the salvation. It is only by faith. It is from faith to faith. It does not deviate. It does not change. This is God's gift to humanity. It is his righteousness from faith to faith. And then Paul reaches into Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 to give evidence that what he's saying is true. He reaches into one of those minor prophets, not even one of the major ones, right? Not even Isaiah or Jeremiah. He reaches into Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Literally, what Habakkuk writes is the righteous one by faith shall live. The only way that we can live, the only way that we can have eternal life is by faith in what the righteous one has done for us. So what Paul is writing is he is saying to the church, I'm not making anything new. I'm not making anything up. This does not originate with me. This is as ancient as God. It is God's righteousness that's declared upon us. And the way we receive it is by faith. So I can summarize it in this way, that the righteousness of God is revealed every time the gospel of God is found. The righteousness of God is revealed every time by faith the gospel is found. If you have found the gospel, my friend, if the gospel has found you, if you are a recipient of God's amazing grace in your life, if you're a believer in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is God's powerful righteousness on display in your life so that you are declared righteous both now and forevermore. Let me tell you one of the biggest questions that Paul has to answer all throughout these 16 chapters. The big question is this, how does a righteous God make sinners innocent? How's he do it? How in the world can a righteous, holy, just, morally pure God Look upon the sin of sinners and say, you're innocent. How's that possible? Because if God just gives a wink and a nod, his holiness is in jeopardy. If God just sweeps your sin under the carpet and says, eh, don't worry about it. It's all right, everybody makes mistakes. Just don't worry about it. If God just dismisses your sin and mine in a very nonchalant manner, then his justice is held hostage. So how, how can a holy, righteous God declare sinners innocent? I mean, a righteous God has to look at me and say, you are guilty. And a righteous God has to look at you and say, guilty as charged. You are a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how can a righteous God Declare sinners innocent. I wish I could just leave that question dangling, but I just can't because I'm a preacher of the gospel. 
but I want you to know that the answer is going to be repeated numerous times over our study of, of the letter of the Romans because Paul answers this time and time and time again. And let me just succinctly say it this way. The only way that a righteous God can declare sinners innocent is for the righteous one to die for the guilty so that the guilty can be declared innocent. That's the only way it can happen. The only way that a righteous God can maintain his justice, the only way that a righteous God can maintain his innocence is that he comes and dies in our place. He pays the punishment that we deserve. He takes the condemnation upon himself so that you've heard me say before, there's a sweet swap of salvation that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. That's the only way that the innocent one can become guilty so that I who am guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. I don't know about you, but that's an amen moment. That's when we stop, hoop and holler and shout and say, God, thank you because it's not about me. It's all about you. It's not my righteousness. It's your righteousness. It's not my grace. It's your grace. It's not my salvation. It's your salvation. And I'm just a worthy, unworthy recipient of your goodness unto me. To God be glory and praise. Now, friends, we're just climbing Mount Everest, and we just started on a journey. There are sacred heights yet to come, but the gospel is a righteousness from God that's revealed from faith to faith for anyone who will believe. The year was 386 A.D., Aurelius Augustine was a professor of rhetoric in Milan. His mother was a devout Christian. She desperately wanted her son to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. She would pray for him. She would talk to him about the gospel. But Augustine refused because in his confessions he said, I knew that if I became a Christian, I would have to give up my mistress. And the allure of my mistress was far too seductive. One day he was seated in a garden. He had a scroll of Romans beside him. He writes in his confessions that he heard children playing in the background. Whatever game they were playing prompted them to say, take up and read. Take up and read. Take up and read. He looked over and picked up Romans. He laid his eyes upon what he writes, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He went on to write, no sooner had I read that last line that the darkness of doubt vanished away. And on that day, Augustine became a believer in Christ. Fast forward to the year 1513. 
It was Martin Luther who was a theology professor. And he said, I desperately wanted to believe in a God of grace. And he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the thesis statement of the entire book, that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. And Martin Luther said that it just illuminated my spirit. I always understood that God was righteous and just in punishing the wicked. And when I understood that, it caused me to be hateful. But on this day, I realized that the righteousness of God also justifies us to live by grace and through faith. And on this day, there was an inexpressible sweet love that overcame my spirit. And on that day, Martin Luther gave his life to Christ in the gospel. If you fast forward to the year 1738, John Wesley was invited to go to a meeting at Aldersgate Street in London, England. When he got there, he realized that the one who was leading the meeting was simply going to read the preface of Martin Luther's commentary to the Romans. He said, I sat there rather begrudgingly listening to what that man had to say. He spoke about the change that can be wrought in a heart that is surrendered unto Christ. And about a quarter till nine, I felt my heart, John Wesley writes, strangely warmed. I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, and he saved me. He went on to write that from that night on, God ignited an inextinguishable blaze in my soul. On that night, John Wesley trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. It transformed him, ignited him, set him ablaze for the rest of his life. If you'll just jump with me to the year 1981. It was then that a nearly seven-year-old, knobby-kneed, scrawny boy knelt by his bed flanked by his mother on one side and his father on the other. They shared the gospel with him. He responded in faith. And I can give you testimony that I was that knobby-kneed boy. I was that one who at nearly the age of seven, I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. On April the 15th, 1981, I asked Jesus to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to transform my life to be my Lord and my Savior. And on that night, I got saved. How, do you, how does a seven-year-old boy get saved? I don't know. But on that night, I got saved. I got saved to the point that I said, God, you you're in charge of my life. I want to please you. I want to do what you want me to do. A few years later, he called me to preach. And so now I'm preaching all these years later simply because of the gospel. I am obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks. I am eager to preach the gospel to you here in Pelham. And I am one who is not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because I am exhibit A. I know this gospel has a transforming power upon the life of its recipient. And we receive this innocent declared righteousness by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. I, my friend, am a beneficiary of the goodness of God and the righteousness of Christ. And, 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 and he died on the cross for me and for you. And I just have to come and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my sin-sick soul. 
blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, and this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, and this is my song. I'll be praising my Savior all the day long. Friend, if you're here today, if you're listening to my voice, and if you've never trusted this Jesus as your Savior, today I came to tell you that the God-man came to earth, died on the cross for all of your mistakes, past, present, and future. He took the punishment that you deserve for all of eternity. His dead body was taken off the cross, placed into a borrowed grave, and on the third day, the proof's in the pudding. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you, by faith, trust and believe the gospel, God's explosive work of righteousness will be on display in your life. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, today can be the day of your salvation. We're going to sing. I want you to come. If you're here today and you are a believer, but maybe for some reason, maybe you walked in here not quite as appreciative of the sweet gospel that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. Well, today, friend, I want you to declare upon God, saying unto him, I am obligated. I am eager. I am unashamed of the gospel. And let's walk out of this place bearing testimony to the goodness and the greatness of our God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Father, for those listening to my voice in person or online, I pray that if they do not know you as Savior, if they've never trusted you, that today will be the day of their salvation. And Father, for those of us who are believers, help us today to thank you afresh for salvation and to walk out of here driven unto obedience unto the nations. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.